0: We'll be reading this morning from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and reading through verse 25, Romans 1, 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, I have to ask this morning, does anybody here have as their aim in life to be a fool? No one? Would you rather be wise? Of course we would. Well, our text this morning uh, tells us how to be wise, how to gain wisdom, and how to avoid the worst kind of foolishness There is, the kind that leads to eternal destruction. And the key lies in thanksgiving. Our doctrine this morning is this, that true wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God who is our greatest good. True wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God who is our greatest good. I want to look at our text this morning to uh, bring this truth out, but we're not going to look at the verses in the order that they are written, and I trust that you'll see why as we work our way through these ideas. I actually want to begin with verse 20. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So what we see here is that the very creation itself, the world all around us that we observe with our senses, the creation is telling us something. We hear this kind of language in the culture, don't we? If we circumstances happen in, a, in just a particular sort of way, what some people might call a coincidence, where things fall out uh, in, in order to prevent somebody from doing something they had intended or, or something like that. They might say something to the effect of, well, the universe is trying to tell me something. Well, yes, yes, the universe is trying to tell us something. Unfortunately, most of us don't listen to what it is actually saying. The awesomeness of a night sky full of stars arranged in predictable constellations and moving in predictable ways that can actually be used to navigate ships on the ocean. The beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. We had a gorgeous one Friday night. Oranges and reds and yellows in the clouds. It was breathtakingly beautiful or the relaxing sound of the waves lapping at the shore, the song of birds in the springtime, or the sound of migrating waterfowl in the fall, the gracefulness of a white-tailed deer carefully stepping its way through the woods, the stunning colors of the leaves as they change in the fall, the quiet stillness of the winter after a fresh snow, the vibrant green of life that we see in the spring, or the warmth of the summer sun on your skin. All around us, the creation is speaking. It's testifying to the one who made it. The creation testifies continuously. It never stops, and it has since the beginning. Verse 20 says, "...for since the creation of the world..." From the very beginning, this isn't something new. This has been going on your entire life. This has begun long before you existed, before your parents, before your grandparents, your great-grandparents, and on down the line. From the very first moment of creation, everything that exists has been testifying to the Creator. And it never stops. From the moment you awake in the morning until the moment you go to bed at night, all around you, the universe, is testifying and proclaiming the truth of God. Even while you sleep, it is not silent. It continues to sing the praises of its creator. As Christ said so many times in the Gospels, He who has ears, let him hear. I encourage you to take some time this afternoon to just sit and soak in God's creation. Listen to it, observe it, see the beauty of it. Hear what the creation is telling us. Its testimony is continuous. Its testimony is also clear. Verse 20 says, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. It's a curious phrase, isn't it? His invisible, unseen attributes attributes are clearly seen. Well, how does that work? Well, we can see, we can't see God, we can't see his attributes, but we can see what he has made. And the things that he has made reflect the character of the one who made them. When we look at creation all around us, we are seeing a reflection, a visible expression of the unseen character of God, the creator. It's unmistakable. It's clear. The image of God in man has been marred because of our sin. It's been defaced or obscured. It's difficult to see because of our sin. But creation does not suffer from this same fault. Creation is clearly and continuously testifying of the one who made it. Creation's testimony is also understandable verse 20 tells us. His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. When we see the creation around us and and the beauty of it, there is no mistaking what the creation is testifying. We can see and we can understand. All of this doesn't exist of, by, and for itself. It exists of God. It exists by God. It exists for God. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's Romans eleven thirty six. 36. When we look at the world around us and everything that God has made, we, we see the immensity of space in the night sky. We see the intricacy of a cell under a microscope. <laughs> the height of the clouds, the depth of the ocean. It's all testifying of its creator. And we can look at these things and use the minds that he has given us to reason from what he has made to who he is. It's a continuous testimony. It is a clear testimony. It is an understandable testimony. And it is also a true testimony. Creation is testifying of his eternal power and Godhead. What creation says about the creator is that the one who made all things is almighty. His power is without limits or boundaries. He created everything that exists with a word. We can't create anything with a word. He created everything. There was nothing but God. And then he spoke and everything came into existence. His power knows no limits. He holds all things together by the word of his power. The the fact that, that we and that everything around us continues to exist from one moment to the next only happens because God wills it to be so and because he is the creator and because he has this sort of power over his creation he is God and there is no other creation testifies not only to his eternal power but to his Godhead which is to say his authority over what he has made creation testifies that it does not belong to us it belongs to God. It belongs to the one who made it. He can do with it as he sees fit. We, you know, we can't even harness the power of one bolt of lightning. One bolt of lightning contains so much energy that we can't harness it. And yet, those bolts are but dim sparks compared to the power of God. And they strike when... And where he has determined, they will strike. He is almighty God. So creation's testimony of him is true, his eternal power and his Godhead. But more than that, creation's testimony to God is gracious. It is a gracious testimony because God has told it to testify of him. Look back at verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them or among them in their midst for or because God has shown it to them. God has shown it. The creation's testimony is God's gracious revelation of himself to us. He created all things to testify to his glory, to his power, to his eternal Godhead. You know, he, he created this planet for us to dwell on and made man in his image and put us on this planet. He created the vast expanse of space, not for us, but to testify to his glory he created us with the ability to observe and to the senses with, with which to uh, take in everything that He has made, and with minds to process that information and to understand the truth of it. You know, the animals don't think that way, they, they just they don't consider their creator in the way that we do. They just are, they, they act by instinct. But man has been created in God's image. With an immortal and reasonable soul, our confession says. That means that, that we have souls, that we internal dialogue, our mind, our will, and our emotions. We can recognize the Creator. We can reason from what He has made to who He is. And so the text tells us that man is without excuse. The evidence is there all around us. And we have been given the ability to witness that evidence and the rationality to conclude from it the truth concerning God. There is no excuse. God has revealed himself to us, and our conclusion should be that he exists, that he is all-powerful, that he alone is God. And therefore, we should honor him and be thankful to him. It's a continuous testimony. We can't claim that, well, we missed it, right? It was testifying here and it was testifying there and I was right here and I missed it. No, it's a continuous testimony. We can't say that we missed it. It's a clear testimony. We can't use the excuse that we were confused by what creation was telling us. It's an understandable testimony. We can't say that, well, yeah, I knew it was saying something, but I misunderstood it. We can't use that as an excuse. And it's a true testimony concerning God. So we can't say that it misled us. We are without excuse. In spite of all the evidence around us and the things that God has made, verse 18 says that men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. To suppress it is the idea of holding it down. The picture is really of somebody trying to drown the truth. The problem is is that as we're doing so, even the water itself is proclaiming the truth to us. So what, what do we do? Men are in rebellion against their creator. The unsaved don't believe. But it's not because they can't understand. It's not because the truth isn't clear to them. They don't believe because they don't want to believe. It's a matter of the will, not the intellect. We all know the truth. We just don't want to accept it. To accept the truth that creation testifies all around us is to acknowledge that he is God. And that means that we're not. That means that he is an authority, that we are accountable to him to be judged according to his righteous standard. We don't want that. We want to be God. We want to be the one who judges others. That's much more fun than being accountable to God for our own lives. We want to be the one that determines and sets the standard for right and wrong so that we can excuse ourselves. We know the truth. We just don't like it. So we suppress it. We, we hide it from ourselves. Well, how do we do that? Well, verse 21 tells us, says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. There are two components to suppressing the truth that we know about God. First, we don't glorify him as God. Second, we're not thankful. To glorify him as God would be not only to acknowledge but to honor and adore him as God, to make much of of his excellence, of his perfection, of his beauty. In other words, to glorify him as God means to worship him, not grudgingly, but joyfully. Our hearts captivated by the splendor and the majesty of the one who made all things by the glory of his unstained holiness. It means to see him as the greatest good in existence, to hold him above all else in our affections, which means to humble ourselves and to exalt him. And it means to be thankful, and and not just to be thankful for things, right? We often will pray and be thankful. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for my family. Thank you for this food. And we should. We should be thankful for these things. They are gifts of God's graciousness to us that we do not deserve. But more than that, God, the creator of all, the most holy, righteous, good, gracious, merciful, altogether loving God, not only made us, not only gave us all these things, but he revealed himself to us. There's nothing greater that he could give us. There's nothing more perfect, nothing more beautiful, nothing more excellent that he could have revealed to men than the revelation of himself. There's nothing more. He is the greatest good, the highest joy, altogether loving, righteous, just, merciful, and holy. There's nothing he could share with us more worthy of thanksgiving than to share himself with us. And recognizing this truth and joyfully embracing him Is the essence of true wisdom. Joyfully giving thanks to Him for His good gift of Himself is the essence of true wisdom and right worship. And we understand this idea of thankfulness, right? When someone gives us a gift, we understand that we should express thankfulness for that. We teach our children this. When someone gives you something, you say thank you in response. Even simple things someone holding the door open for you or passing you the salt shaker at the dinner table, you say thank you. We teach this to our children. We know it's important to show thanks. So when the Almighty, holy, incomprehensible, perfectly loving, merciful, long-suffering, infinite God of all goodness and truth graciously reveals himself, to us as the greatest possible good. We should respond with thanksgiving for who he is. The creature should be thankful to the creator, not only for giving us life and breath and all good things, but for giving us himself. He welcomes us into relationship with him. Paul, this morning, uh, downstairs talked about the, he read the verse about the potter and the clay. What kind of a relationship does the potter have with the mug after he has made it? He uses it, but that's about it. But our Creator has been so gracious as to invite us to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. This, this should be cause for thanksgiving, joyful thanksgiving. We have an obligation as his creatures to be thankful to him. True wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God, who is our greatest good. Those who do not honor him as God and are not thankful for him reject wisdom and they become fools. Verse 21 says, That although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man in his natural state is hostile to God in rebellion against his creator, and therefore he's unwilling to render honor and worship and gratitude to God. And this failure to honor God, this failure to render thanksgiving to God for the good gift of himself is one of the chief causes of our corruption and of our idolatry. The scripture says that by refusing to glorify God, that is to to worship him as God, to give him thanks, that they became futile in their thoughts. This is to say that their way of thinking became useless, empty, vain. Now, we're going to talk about why in just a moment, but I want to continue with verse 21 a bit longer. Not only does a person's thinking become empty and useless and vain when they refuse to worship God, thankfully, but also it says their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, our heart is is more than just the organ pumping blood through our bodies. When Scripture speaks of our heart, it is including our mind, our thoughts. It's including our our will, our emotions, and our affections. What do we love? The heart is our inner person. It is who we are as individuals. In refusing to worship God with thanksgiving, person's heart becomes foolish now foolish is the opposite of wise it's not only unintelligent but it's it's dull it's it's slow to learn it's worse even it's perverted it's, it's twisted it, it's loving things that you shouldn't love things that are actually destructive for you Our hearts become foolish, our affections become fixed on things that are not good for us. We lose sight of the truth. It says that our foolish hearts are darkened, which is to say that we're without light. We're blinded to reality, blind to the goodness of God and his creation, blind to beauty, blind to the testimony of creation all around us. And there's sort of a a self-fulfilling circular feedback loop that happens here. The more a person stubbornly refuses to worship God with thanksgiving, the more their thoughts become empty and devoid of the truth, and their heart, their will, and their affections become blind to the testimony of creation all around them that should render them to be thankful. And because they've become blind and their thoughts have become empty... They're less inclined to worship God, less inclined to be thankful to the creator. And so the loop feeds back on itself and they become even more foolish, more blind to the truth. They're deceiving themselves. And this is why someone can look at the beauty of a sunrise or sunset or the vastness of the ocean or a sky full of stars at night and instead of being moved, with awe and, and wonder at the creator who made all of this, they try to convince themselves that, well, it all just happened by accident. It's meaningless, it has no purpose. All its vastness, all its intricacy, its splendor, the beauty of creation is declaring the glory of God, and they won't see it because they don't want to. They've become blind. Their thought processes have become futile. You ever look at the culture around us, the things that are happening in the world, and you wonder, how can people be so blind to the truth? How can they believe these things? How can they act in these ways? How can people believe that all of this is just an accident with no purpose and then wonder why young people give in to despair and suicide rates increase? Culture told them they had no purpose, no value, and then scratches their heads when people believe it. How can people believe the ideology of the LGBTQIA alphabet soup? How can they believe that ideology? How can they be so ignorant of biological truth and reality? It's the foolishness of ingratitude. They've refused to honor or be thankful to God. They've become blind to the truth the effects of ingratitude are far-reaching. Ingratitude hardens the heart. When someone graciously gives you something and you don't respond with thankfulness for that gift, over time your heart grows hard. You might even come to take the gift for granted, come to believe that it's yours by right. And when this happens, you won't want to be reminded of the one who gave you the gift because then you'll be reminded that you owe them thankfulness. So you look for ways to obscure your knowledge of the giver, your memory of him, to forget God. And the way to do that is to fix your affections on other things, to express thankfulness not to God, to whom it is due, but to lesser things, to the gifts of God, This is the essence of idolatry, to elevate the gift to the position of the giver, to give the honor that is due to God to his creation instead. It's the essence of idolatry, a stubborn refusal to thank God for his gracious revelation of himself, for his mercy and his goodness to us. This is the cause of hardness of heart towards God and unbelievers. The scripture goes on to say in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. See, they think they're wise. In reality, they're foolish. They refuse to honor God. They suppress the plain truth about God, the testimony of creation all around them. They claim that they're wise, that they have knowledge, that they understand. They even would look at religious people who honor God and are thankful to God and say that we're the ones who are unscientific, who who lack knowledge. But the truth is they have made themselves into fools, wise in their own eyes. And you'll find quite often that those who think themselves wise in this way are actually quite ignorant and very arrogant. They'll state their opinions with confidence, having no true knowledge, but thinking themselves to be the wisest person in the room. And this sort will at times, we have to be careful because we're reading this and we're thinking that's out there in the world. But these sort of people find their way into the church. Scripture says that they are lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, always learning, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, growing worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's Second Timothy. That's Paul writing to young Timothy as he pastors the church in Ephesus, warning him about these sort of people in the church. Notice that They're unthankful, just like those who are spoken of here in Romans 1. And if you continue to read Romans 1 and you you get to verse 28... Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. This sounds like the list from 2 Timothy, doesn't it? It's almost identical. We often think that Romans 1 is speaking about people out there in the world. But it's actually warning us that these sorts of people find their way into the church. It's speaking of those who raise themselves up as false teachers in the church, proud and unthankful, loving themselves rather than God. And here's how we can know that Romans 1 is actually speaking about these sorts of people in the church, apart from the fact that these two lists are almost identical. Verse 23 says that they've changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Sounds like idolatry, doesn't it? Sounds like pagans and non-Christians out in the world. Surely he's not talking about people in the church, but the Apostle Paul writing this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is using language from the Old Testament, language concerning God's people, not pagans. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, it says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. This is a reference to the burning bush when God spoke to Moses out of the bush be careful. God is a spirit. He has no form. Remember that. The text goes on. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. This is a restatement of the second commandment, don't make an image of God. No shape of a human, of an animal, of a bird, or anything. Romans one twenty three says that they have changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. He isn't talking about pagans worshiping false gods. He's talking about Israel. This is the language of Psalm 106. Psalm 106 is a historical psalm that tells us the story of the Exodus, and it begins with thanksgiving. Give praise and thanks unto the Lord, for bountiful is he, his tender mercy doth endure unto eternity. But as you continue reading, and the psalm tells the story of the Exodus, you get to verse 19 where it says this, Upon the hill at Horeb they an idle calf did frame. A molten image they did make, and worshipped the same. And thus their glory and their God most vainly changed they into the likeness of an ox that eateth grass or hay. They did forget the mighty God that had their Savior been, by whom such great things brought to pass they had in Egypt seen. Did you catch that? He's talking about the golden calf in Exodus 32. The people came to Aaron. Moses is delayed on the mountain. They came to Aaron, and and they wanted to worship, and they didn't know how because Moses had not yet come back down from the mountain with God's instructions. And so Aaron collects gold from all the people, and he fashions it into the shape of an ox, a golden calf. And what does he tell them? He tells them, this is Yahweh. This is God. He didn't tell them to worship a false god. He told them to worship the true God falsely. And what happened? The psalm says they forgot the mighty works that God had done for which they should have been thankful. How does the psalm describe this sinful act? It says they exchanged the glory of God for the vain, empty image of an ox. Harrison Everett in his commentary on Romans 1 says, the glory of God is his spirituality, his unseen attributes, in contrast to any attempt to express his excellence in physical terms. The problem with images of God is that they are false. They cannot express who God is. God is a spirit, an omnipresent spirit. Even Christ, we get confused about this. Christ took on human flesh at the incarnation, but he is still God. He is the almighty, omnipresent God. He did not lay down his divine essence. He simply took to himself a human nature. No image or representation of Jesus even can truthfully represent who he is as God As John Calvin said, every statue man erects or every image he paints to represent God simply displeases God as something dishonorable to his majesty. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire a painting or a sculpture. He inspired the written word. So the early church for several centuries did not allow images of God in any form or fashion Eventually, the Roman Catholic Church introduced them. But when the Reformation happened, the Reformers and all Protestants rejected them as violations of the Second Commandment, as false idols and sinful. In his lectures on Romans, Martin Luther observed, "...how many there are even today who worship him, not as if he were God, but as if he were as they themselves imagine him for themselves." Any representation of God is a work of fiction. It comes from man's sinful imagination and should be rejected as such. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah saying this in Jeremiah 2. Has a nation changed its gods which are not gods? Has any pagan nation who worships these false gods, have they changed their gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. False images of God are an exchange of his glory, which should have been our treasured possession for that which is empty, and vain, broken cisterns that can't hold water, useless. And what happens? We become like what we worship. Psalm 135 explains that these false images, mouths have they, but they do not speak, eyes, but they do not see, ears have they, but hear not, and in their mouths no breathing be. Their makers are like them. So are all that on them rely. Their makers are like them. We become like what we worship. If you worship God in spirit and truth, you become like him, remade into his image. But if you worship a false image, an image that cannot portray the truth of God's glory, you end up with a faith that is empty. Now, I know this can be hard to hear because images of Jesus are so common, Even in the church today, we often accept them without carefully thinking through what the Bible has taught on this subject. We have paintings, digital images, children's Bible, TV shows that portray Christ. Am I saying that these things are sinful and should be avoided? Yeah, I am. They're false images. The Westminster Larger Catechism goes so far as to say that the second commandment forbids the making of any representation of God of all or any of the three persons either inwardly in our mind or outwardly in any kind of image or likeness. Don't even picture God in your mind. The Bible doesn't give us a detailed description of what Christ looks like, so we shouldn't imagine one. It would be false. It would not be a true image. It wouldn't do justice to his divine nature. And ultimately, it would be an exchange of his glory into a lifeless, empty, and vain image that we would begin to resemble, becoming futile in our thoughts and our foolish hearts, blinded to the truth. God has explicitly told us not to do it. He's warned us of what happens when we begin to go down this path of using images We have God's revelation of himself in the book of nature, which reveals to us his unseen attributes, and his revelation of himself in the book of Scripture, which reveals to us the truth of salvation. To do anything else is to thanklessly reject his self-revelation and chase after vanity. It is to forget our God, as the Israelites did at Horeb. True wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God, who is our greatest good. The text goes on to say that because they have become empty and useless, like the false images they worship, verse 24, therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Unnatural and dishonorable relations with other people resemble the unnatural and dishonorable relationship they had practiced with God, rejecting the truth and preferring their vain and empty imagination. And so God gives them up to do the same with each other. This is the essence of the LGBTQ ideology. The fundamental problem is a problem of worship. These sexual sins are a dramatic example of the untruthful relations with other humans that flow out of a false understanding of who God is. But don't forget that the text goes on to give us that long list of sins describing those who have been given up to their own sinful desires. And you know, this language of God giving them up, this is interesting. Paul didn't come up with this himself here in Romans. Paul actually heard it from Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is preaching, Paul is there. When they stone Stephen, it says they lay their robes down at his feet. He's giving his approval to their stoning Stephen because of the sermon he had just preached. And here's part of what Stephen said in that sermon, which the apostle Paul heard before he was saved. Stephen said, and they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Stephen talks about the same incident with the golden calf, and what he says is they started out by falsely worshiping the true God, and because they worshiped falsely, because they preferred their imagination to God's revelation, they became false, they became vain, empty, and so God gave them up. He removed his restraint on the desires of their hearts, and what happened? They began to worship false gods. They became true idolaters. It's an exchange, as it says in verse 25, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the same language of verse 23, which was about exchanging false images for Yahweh. Here it's exchanging the glory of God, the truth of God for the lie. Well, what is the lie? The lie is that God is not holy, that he is not altogether unique. This is the same lie Satan told Eve in the garden. You can be like God, which is to say, God isn't all that holy. He isn't all that separate, all that distinct from his creation. You can raise yourself up to his level. That's the lie. God is holy. He is altogether distinct from his creation. The the, the divide between the creator and his creation is so great that we can never come up to him by our own effort. We are wholly dependent upon his grace to bring us to himself. To refuse to honor him as God, to give thanks to him for his gracious revelation of himself to us, both in creation and in the scriptures, is the height of foolishness. To think that we can raise ourselves up to God or to be like God is foolishness. True wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God, who is our greatest good. Verse 18 began with a dire warning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. There is a wrath appointed for mankind. The wrath of God Almighty It's terrible to consider. The wrath of an almighty God. Creation testifies of his eternal power and Godhead. His wrath is being revealed from heaven against those who stubbornly refuse to worship him with thanksgiving. That wrath is only being revealed at this time. It's not yet come in its fullness. As the apostle continues his argument into chapter 2, he he warns that those who refuse to worship God, to honor him as God and to be thankful to him, he says in verse 5, but in accordance with your hardness... In your impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. See, there is a great day of wrath coming, the day of the Lord spoken of by the prophets in the Old Testament, the day in which Christ will return to judge all men living and dead. The wrath that is now being revealed from heaven is simply a warning, a foretaste of the wrath that is coming the moral chaos that we see in the culture around us. That's, that's evidence of God's wrath. It's visible evidence that God has given our culture up. But it's just a warning of the true wrath that is to come when Christ returns. But notice that it's not just wrath that's revealed. It's also righteousness God's judgment is righteous, he says in chapter 2, verse 5. And just as God's wrath is now being revealed by God, giving them over to their own foolishness, in which they spiral into deeper idolatry and sin and store up for themselves wrath against that day of the Lord, so also the righteousness of God is being revealed. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul has just told the the believers in Rome that he is eager to preach the gospel to them, and he says, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith.'" This is why he's eager to preach the gospel to believers in Rome, because the gospel is the good news of salvation by faith in Christ alone. It is the revelation of the righteousness of God. The gospel is the solution to the wrath of God. The gospel message is this. God himself took on human flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life that he might be an acceptable substitute for those who he came to save. He gave his life in our place as a substitute on the cross, suffering the wrath of God against our sins so that sinful man could exchange, who exchanges the truth about God for a lie, if we trust in Christ, we get to engage in a different exchange, the exchange of our sinfulness For his righteousness. This is what we call justification. It's what Luther called the great exchange. Those who believe in Christ alone are justified, counted righteous in God's sight, not because of any righteousness inherent in us, but because our sinfulness is placed on Christ and his righteousness is exchanged and placed on us. If you know Christ in this way, if you have been saved, justified, redeemed by him, knowing that he has suffered in your place, how could you be anything but thankful? This is the wisdom of thanksgiving, to honor God as God, to exalt Christ as Lord, to trust in him alone for salvation, to worship him with thanksgiving for all of his wonderful gifts that he has given us, but more than that for the gift of himself. He is our greatest good and that for which we should be most thankful. True wisdom and right worship have as their foundation thankfulness to God who is our greatest good. Only a fool would exchange the glory of Christ for a lie, willingly blind himself to the truth and store up wrath for the coming day of judgment. God has given us two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture, by which we can know him. Let us use the minds that he has given us to think on his revelation, to understand him as he has revealed himself to be, and then seek to honor him as God and be thankful. It's the only wise thing to do. Let's pray.